Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, the only podcast with a flair for watching Mad Max Fury Road one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're watching Minute 19, which begins with Max probably wishing he had some goggles right about now. And it ends with the buzzards noticing the convoy driving through their territory. Joining us this week is Tyler Boudreau and Condra Boudreau of Fantastic Mr. Fox Minute. You should probably put your bandit hats on now. Personally, I don't have one, but I modified a tube sock. What a lovely day to be here. I'm Tyler. Hello, I'm Condra. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us here. So for folks that are unfamiliar with your movie, they hear the title Fantastic Mr. Fox. I don't imagine there's a lot of overlap between your viewers and our viewers. So could you just give us a little bit of a taste of what your movie is all about? Well, I was going to slate this for later, but as you know, George Miller is also a famous kids movie director, directing Happy Feet 1 and 2 and Babe Pig in the City. So uh, there may be more overlap than you think. <laughs> Condra, why don't you describe it? So, Fantastic Mr. Fox is a 2009 Wes Anderson film, stop motion animation based on the book by Roald Dahl, and it stars George Clooney and Meryl Streep, as well as some of Wes Anderson's more notorious actors that he utilizes, including Bill Murray, Jason Schwartzman, and Owen Wilson. And goes through the sword affair of Mr. Fox, a wily creature. Critter. Getting pursued by three ugly farmers. It's a classic tale of someone who is typically very clever, but he gets in a little over his head unexpectedly, and three antagonistic figures come to hassle him, and he has to fight them off. And there are big machines involved at some point. You could say that there are very distinct parallels between your movie and our movie if you take very broad strokes. <laughs> yes. I hadn't thought about it, but <laughs> I think the distinction I would draw is that Fantastic Mr. Fox is very much a like, a dude is a little cocky and like does things that he shouldn't do in a very like The Incredibles slash all Wes Anderson movies kind of way where he like, I'm going to put the rest of my friends in danger because I think I'm better than everyone else. Whereas Furiosa and Max and Mad Max actually are fighting the good fight, so to speak. I can't remember the last time I saw Fantastic Mr. Fox. I don't think any of the farmers were taking woodland creatures as slaves and war fighters and anything like that. So... <laughs> Like I said, when you start using anything other than broad strokes, it starts to fall apart. Yeah. There is a hostage situation in Fantastic Mr. Fox, too. So we do have that going on. But I wanted to bring up the parallels because as we start off minute 19, the first thing we see is the tail end of a shot with Nux and Slit speeding away. But the first thing we really see in this minute are a couple of seconds of Max tied to the front of the car and he is dead center frame with a very symmetrical looking shot and it feels very Wes Anderson-y to me. I see. That is definitely one of Wes's signature shots so 
I didn't think about it at the time. There's also that color palette. Fantastic Mr. Fox is a very orange color palette, very autumnal color palette, and this definitely has that. <laughs> yeah, I really like how we've got Max in the center, and then flanking him on either side is the Doof Wagon and Bigfoot, two of the big main vehicles flanking him on either side. But with that force perspective, it makes it look like they are quite far behind him. Mm-hmm. Which I think is actually really appropriate. Because the next thing we see is an extremely wide shot showing us a bunch of the landscape and in the distance you can see the war rig, but closer to the bottom of the frame you can see the main body of Joe's fleet. And they are speeding along and you can see Nux's car way the heck out there in the front. But the main focus of this shot, aside from showing geographically where everybody is, are these flares that are fired up from the fleet and explode in these lovely colorful clouds of smoke yeah i wondered if there was any sort of code involved in mm. the colors because i did notice the colors it's gold red red so i was wondering if there was some coding involved what do you guys think based on ace's reaction to the flares and that he had said there were specific people being called in and i think he'd like mentioned the bullet farm and gas town were requesting or coming to aid in some way that my guess is that it is coded in some way especially that they are different colors i, I thought the same thing because i mean even if you look at like american military signaling depending on how like the colors are moved or like flag codes you definitely see that so it wouldn't surprise me that does seem very reasonable and it could be a very simple code, as in red is for the bullet farm and gold is for Gastown. <laughs> this is not the amusement park I would want to visit. Which would make sense. Gold for Gastown, red for the bullet farm. Maybe, yeah. You know, red like blood that spills from bullet wounds, I guess. <laughs> All wounds, I guess. That would probably be the easiest thing. One color for one camp, one color for the other. You fire up the flare. If you see the color, you come running. It could also be that it's a specific color combination. They've sent up a red flare and a yellow flare, and it mixes together to form, like, not an organized pattern. But if you're looking out over the horizon and you see those two colors, it probably means something. <laughs> like, the pairing of the colors means a specific thing. Like, the pairing of gold and red mean... That we have a rogue, uh, it'd be too specific to say we have a rogue Imperator. That would be way too specific. But it could denote maybe the size of the rogue force. Yeah. Like we have a rogue force that is between five and ten vehicles. It's like Condra said, similar to nautical flags. Yeah. Different colored flags mean different things and different combinations of colors denote different uh, instances of things happening. Yeah. Although I'd say based on ace's confusion it's not as specific because if he's still wondering what furios is up to there's no way that the flares signal like hey we've got a war rig on the loose come for mm. come for backup it it's probably true. only means like hey bullet town and gas no wh bullet, bullet what is farm. it <laughs> bullet farm and gas bullet farm town. <laughs> gas town come for help it probably yeah. doesn't mean anything more specific than that I wonder, too, as you guys were talking about it again, I was thinking about like flower language, like language of flowers and certain combinations and colors and frequencies and amounts can delineate certain things, too. And that 
I mean, it all lines up where I've it could be something super specific and then it can also be something really vague. I like to think that it's not so much the color combination, but the colors themselves. It's very simply messaged. That first idea of Gold Gas Town, Red Bullet Farm. But I also like to think, and I don't necessarily want to start saying that the 2015 video game is canon, but in the 2015 video game, you see a lot of Warboys from other places, specifically Gas Town, that are painted up different colors other than white. So somehow, I think they have access to different colored pigments. So you have red flares and yellow flares, but I would like to believe that they also have like green flares and blue flares that mean other things. Like we saw a raiding party take out Max in the Interceptor and then drag him back to the Citadel. If you have a raiding party and they're out and about and they find something that's maybe too big to drag home or Mm -hmm. too expansive for them to carry everything, maybe they have a specific colored flare. Okay, here's a green flare to denote loot. Here's a blue flare to denote a well that they can take over because obviously they want to monopolize the water in the area. I'd like to think that they have this giant box of flares and each one has a label. (laughs) (laughs) And depending on the situation, that's what they shoot up in the air. I think it's easy to say that this is a relatively compared to us primitive civilization, but they're already using Morse code. So why can't they be sophisticated enough to use other forms of coding. Mm -hmm. And like you said, they have red pigment and gold pigment. Why can't they have blue pigment or green pigment? I think it's important to remember they're primitive in their raw materials. They have a lot of knowledge. They just don't have like modern manufacturing ability. They can't have radios because who's going to manufacture a transistor and who's going to power a radio tower and all of that. They're kind of scraping by, (laughs) like literally scraping by yes and i think they also no longer have written records Mm. so all they know about is what people remember or they tattoo on their bodies yes Mm. and tattoo on their bodies so all they have is their own relatively recent rudimentary records which we definitely saw the results of back in thunderdome with the language in the waiting ones Mm. they didn't have written records anymore they were just kind of going with what they remembered and it got twisted So the same problem could happen when they're trying to remember, you know, we used to have this thing and it was really great for long distance communication, but I don't remember how it worked. I don't remember what it was called, but we're going to wing it. So some of the really basic stuff like Morse code, they've got, Hmm. they've got that down pat and maybe even they had to make up a new Morse code because maybe they didn't remember everything. Hmm. And they definitely have got cars down, you know, internal combustion engines. They're good on those. Yeah. They figured them out. None of these are electric cars. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> that would be much worse for the aesthetic. <laughs> just all the cars are like, and then one car is just like, Bzzz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would say also in the absence of the written record, as you said, Julia, uh, that's how you get these cult scenarios where everyone is following this one leader who's like, I'm going to lead you to Valhalla. And everyone's <laughs> like, sure, I guess. It's very telling that the people that have chosen to rebel against Immortan Joe are the ones that lived in a room full of books. <laughs> mm. Real quick about these smoke flares. Still on the smoke flares. So daytime fireworks, very much a thing. I was trying to figure out exactly how they're made. 
I found a lot of videos on how to make smoke bomb pellets, which once they start to burn, they just let off a bunch of smoke. I'm not saying that you should run out and combine a bunch of materials and then melt crayons in a pan, especially don't melt crayons in a pan because you will ruin your pans. <laughs> but there are YouTube videos that you can watch to learn how to do it. And the results are really cool. And so I imagine they probably just take these launchable grenades, pack them full of powder, and then when they blow up, you get these nice colorful clouds. But it's not that complicated, and you can do it with very simple materials. I imagine they're probably getting their pigments from plants, specifically the plants that they are growing at the top of the citadel. Like dehydrated, ground up, and then turned into powder? Yes. Yeah. You can't have purple, though, because that comes from snails. Yeah, it's a hard color to find. Yeah. Well, technically, so is blue. Yeah. And they, and, well, indigo. Yeah. Indigo. Is yeah. hard to find. <laughs> There's a whole other thing about that. When you think about flowers and common colors of flowers, I do think that perhaps red and gold are the most common. So they might be the, the easiest for them to grow in massive amounts enough to make these flares. Hmm. I wonder, too, if they're ground up rocks. Yellow can commonly come from like potassium, like elementally, and that can be found in rocks and minerals pretty easily. And same with red, that can be a copper compound or it can be, oh, what's the other one that turns red? Iron? Iron, yeah. So I wonder, it also very well could be a rock compound. That would also make a lot of sense because they've got a lot of internal workings going on inside the citadel. A lot of rocks. And if they want to expand, they're going to have to break up the rocks, Mm. mine them out. Plus, sulfur is also very yellow. Mm -hmm. Yes. So it could be that the yellow flares are for the bullet farm because they're sulfur colored. And the red flares would be for Gastown because flames? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. I'm not quite sure. Hey, it's as good a guess as any. Whatever the specific reasoning behind the colors at hand, as we're watching the convoy drive along, it's the war boy in the fuel pod that first notices the flares and he calls everything forward and more and more war boys start yelling about these flares. And eventually Ace at the front of the tanker realizes, oh, hey, this is a interesting development that is compounding on the interesting development that we had when we turned off the road in the first place. <laughs> and so he hops off the tanker, lands on the top of the rig, and he pounds on the roof, and Furiosa has to open up the hatch so she can talk to him. And he conveys the message that Furiosa already knows, because she has eyes and mirrors, <laughs> saying that, you know, the Citadel is firing flares. They're asking for reinforcements. What is this? Ace is very curious. Mm-hmm. He wants to know what's going on. He wants to be in the loop. He has ideas of what the possibilities could be. I think his downfall is he doesn't shut up long enough for Furios to answer him. Everything he has in his head, he just spits it out. (laughs) And then she can answer him. Where Mm -hmm. if he just stopped and gave her a moment, she would answer before he even had to finish. Yeah, because Furios is a big talker. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) It makes me wonder if the dynamic that is typically set up between Ace and Furiosa is that Ace will do what you're talking about. He'll rattle off a bunch of possibilities and then Furiosa will just confirm which one was correct. Yes. It's just not a very productive manager-supervisor relationship. (laughs) If he would just ask the question, hey, boss, what's going on? 
she would answer it and they would have been done in half the time. But neither of them are like that. She's reluctant to answer and he feels the need to spit everything out in one sentence. So, you know, it works for them. It works. It's just not very efficient. I think it's a very interesting aspect of the storytelling where uh, Ace is very trustworthy of Furiosa. And I'm sure you guys talked about this earlier when they peeled off the road in the first place. But he's going with her because Furiosa is this like BA like driver who's going to get stuff done. And Ace is going to follow her because, hey, she's the boss. And in terms of building tension, the fact that he still trusts her up to this point is going to make it even crazier when he does finally realize that she's betrayed Morton Joe and he's got to turn on her. And that's very endearing. I like Ace. He's a good soldier. I really like that he is so loyal to Furiosa. It doesn't even cross his mind that something may be amiss. And he just blindly follows her. Yeah, we've definitely got dramatic irony on our side. Like, we know exactly what the flares are for. We know exactly how much Joe knows and what he's told the other war boys. Ace knows two things. (laughs) (laughs) He knows they're heading east. (laughs) And through this interaction with Furiosa, he knows that it's a detour. Now, something that he might think is going on, and this is not expressed in the movie. It's not expressed in any of the comic books. It's what I assume. If I were in Ace's shoes, knowing what Ace knows, it could be that the Citadel knew about an oncoming attack from a third party and that in order to keep up appearances, they sent out the war rig on the supply run to Gastown. And so everybody thought, okay, we're all going to Gastown. So when Furiosa turned off the road to head east... And then it was revealed that Citadel's calling for reinforcements. This is a detour. Perhaps as part of that keeping up appearances thing, the war egg was sent far out to the east on a detour to eventually go to Gastown. So that way, all of the fighting can take place on the main road between the Citadel and Gastown and this third party drawn out by the promise of the war rig would instead be confronted by the Citadel forces with reinforcements from Gastown and the Bullet Farm. So maybe the war rig was bait. Yeah, that is the conclusion that I would draw if I were in Ace's shoes. I think that's plausible. It doesn't really work out that way because the buzzards catch up to the war rig before the Citadel forces catch up to the buzzards. One thing that works in Furiosa's favor is that Ace still doesn't know that they're secretly hauling the wives because up until now, the only indication that we have that the wives are even involved in this story is the fact that they're not in the vault. Mm -hmm. And Miss Giddy said she didn't take them. They begged her to go like they're playing the pronoun game. We haven't (laughs) definitively had anyone say Furiosa took the wives. (laughs) There's Joe making assumptions, Miss Giddy playing the pronoun game And anyone who's seen the movie before obviously knows how it works out. But for people watching it the first time around, they don't necessarily know that there are people hiding on the rig with concrete confirmation. Yeah, because George didn't do that thing where you focus on something that at the time may seem unusual, but then down the road it becomes important. Mm-hmm. He didn't focus the camera in on this trap door that nobody notices or the fact that there is extra space under the back half of 
the rig cab. He didn't do anything like that. He didn't tease us. He didn't put anything in there that in a few minutes when it is revealed, we're like, oh, that's why that's there. Nope. (laughs) That I have noticed he didn't do anything like that. He dropped clues for us, but they're so big and obvious that, yeah, you know what's going on. It just hasn't been confirmed yet. Condra, you just saw this film for the first time. How did you feel about the whole uh, missing wives? I didn't quite understand the vault. So as I was watching it, I was like, "What does the, what is this talking about? I watched the first Mad Max the other day, and then I watched Fury Road yesterday. And it was one of those things that I had no idea what I was getting into. And I was actually quite confused until it was like, oh, that's where they are. That's what that whole weird vault thing was. It did take me a little bit to actually catch up to the idea that they were stowaways. And I think it is a strength of the movie that it did take me a little bit and that's okay. And it's actually better storytelling because then it means more in the long run when they're actually active participants. And it's not like the perfect feminist thing but it's also giving a lot more agency than definitely like the first mad max did and uh, (laughs) Uh, yeah um i haven't seen the um middle two i couldn't get them in time but it was interesting to kind of get thrown into all of this and be like all right what the heck is going on here i have no idea and figure out that these wives were participants and a lot of the men were kind of bumbling fools. Also, there was like military elements to it where just like the blind following of the second in command and how that's kind of a trope that you see throughout military stories where you'll just have this like lieutenant-esque officer who just will be like, yes, I'm going along with whatever my captain is saying. And it's funny, like thinking about like kind of the bumbling lieutenant as a trope. And Ace, I think, definitely falls into that. And having that kind of stoic captain-like character that is very limited in their words. I was very intrigued during this whole bit. And I had a lot of confusion in this first half hour, 40 minutes or so. I was like, I have no idea what's going on. I'm just here for the ride. And I was captivated, though. So, I mean, there is a strength in the storytelling. Julia, could you imagine going straight from Mad Max 79 to Ooh. this movie? That is quite a jump. And even going from Thunderdome to this movie is quite a jump. Going from anything to this movie is <laughs> quite a jump because this movie is so unique. But Mad Max 79 is unlike any of the other movies. And now that I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about Max's personal journey and where we leave him off at the end of Mad Max 79. He's driving off into the wilderness being completely heartbroken and devastated from what he has witnessed and following that up with the murdering of the people that he has done the injuries that he has received after all of that he just drives out there and it actually feels like a really logical place for him to first of all be in the same car there's no car journey you miss all of that (laughs) he's in the same car and we see him next and he is still mad so that journey, missing the two movies in between, that journey still makes sense. Julia, are you suggesting what I think you're suggesting? The idea of a split timeline Mad Max universe where Fury Road is the direct sequel to the 79 Mad Max? 
It could work. All I'm going to say is it could work, especially because of the journey that Carr has been on has been a little bit convoluted. <laughs> so to skip all of that does kind of feel nice. That way we don't have to think about Max rebuilding his interceptor piece by piece over yeah. the course of Beyond Thunderdome and what happens between that movie and this movie. And Max takes some really hardcore ups and downs in two and three. But at the end, when we see him at the beginning of Fury Road, he's kind of still in the same place as at the end of 79. Mm. It's almost like those ups and downs didn't really make any difference. I mean, they did allow people were saved. People's lives were improved. He did have happy moments. So it's not like those ups and downs were a waste. I just think at the end, he ended up about in the same place. Yeah. Well, as I think we discussed in that first week, there must have been several downs that happened in the 30-year interim between Beyond Thunderdome coming out and Fury Road picking up. Not that 30 years in the world passed, but... <laughs> right. It has been made very clear to us that there are more downs than ups. Yeah. In the intervening years that we have not seen. He really is a Mad Max. Yeah. <laughs> Although more like Mad Furiosa in this movie, am I right? Because she's like the protagonist. It's crazy. Yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> with Ace pacified with this idea, oh, it's a detour, and he just sort of thinks, oh, okay, that's what the boss says, that's what the boss says, and we get to see a few more shots of the war rig and its convoy escort driving through the desert, and we go up onto a ridge, and in the last couple of seconds of this minute, a buggy drives up and it is covered in these rusted metal spikes and inside are two raider types and they are speaking russian and they say what is this war rig doing on our patch and it gets cut off so this is the first look that we get at the buzzards they're a raider group that kind of patrols this area we'll talk more about them on wednesday but before we end for today tyler and condra could you tell the lovely people listening where they might hear more of you Yes. Uh, okay. Uh, so yeah, we're Fantastic Mr. Fox Minute. Uh, you can find us anywhere podcasts are found. No. Well, not anywhere, but mostly Apple and Google. And just search Fantastic Mr. Fox Minute. Uh, we're right there. Our brand name is The Amateur Nerds. So if you want to find us on the interwebs, you can look at amateurnerds.podbean.com. That's our RSS feed, the way where it's based out of. <laughs> and uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Amateur Nerds is the show. We're also on the Movies by Minute website, too, just like all the other Movies by Minute podcasts. So if you can't find us on other ways, check us out on that website, too. And as for us, come back on Wednesday because Furiosa is going to catch sight of these guys up on the ridge, which tips off the war boys that trouble is close at hand. And uh, trouble it is as the convoy springs a trap and the buzzards descend on them like, uh, I don't know, some sort of bird of prey. <laughs> Not like, not like a, not like a vulture or any, like, maybe like, like a buzzard, perhaps. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that sounds right. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy. is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com.
Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute, like us on Facebook by searching for madmaxminute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit madmaxminute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 19 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time.